Ayers on the Road, Parenting in a Modern World. Here's Richard and Linda Ayer. Hi there, you good parents and listeners. We are back again. It's another Monday, and we are excited to be with you. Richard, and it's only, it's only Richard that's on the road. Linda's sitting in the comfort of home. Yes, absolutely. And actually, we have been home for two weeks, which is a record. It's just absolutely amazing. But we are getting ready to take off again in another week. We are headed for Poland and Germany and England. So we'll have a lot to report from there. Did you know they had parents over there in Poland and England and Germany? Well, they sure do. And the comforting thing to us is that parents everywhere we go in the world have the same worries, the same hopes, the same dreams, and frankly, the same problems. (laughs) Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, we have found, of course, there's a few differences. When we were in China, we found the children were a little more respectful, I must admit. And actually, though, I did ask... they have less problems. Well, I did ask a parent how they... Because we had a, a session with the children, and I said, how do you get your children to be so obedient and so respectful to you? And he, with a totally straight face, this is an um, upper-class businessman, said, oh, easy, we just keep a switch in the closet. <laughs> Linda, are you, Linda, are you giving parenting advice, or are you just I know, I'm telling you how they did it in China. It's up to parents, I guess. <laughs> Um, how they do that, but it is really interesting that they do a little different sort of discipline, and I don't think that that's absolutely necessary to create respect. In fact, not necessary. Well, there are, there are, there are, I don't mean to imply that there aren't differences in the modality that parents use in different places. In fact, I'm sure a lot of you listeners have been reading, there's been a lot in the, in the media lately about French parenting and how matter-of-fact and in control uh, French parents seem to be in comparison to American parents, I bet we'll find that same sort of tendency in Germany when we're there, honey, that uh, it seems as though Europeans don't make quite such a big emotional deal. There's not quite as much drama in their parenting as there sometimes is in American parenting. Well, I read that article and it was going like crazy. It's a New York Times article titled something about French parents are superior. And so uh, I read that and some things I thought, you know, they're right. We, as a nation, we aren't as good at saying no, putting kids where they should be. We think we have to entertain them every minute and they don't learn how to take care of themselves and all that. And, you know, there is something about that, but I'm sure there's a lot of, uh, Pretty bad parenting in uh, Prads as well. But I do have to tell a funny story. The day that came out, and I was writing an article about it, I went over to have lunch with Richard. We were in California, and I went over to a nice restaurant, and we ordered our lunch, and this cute family came and sat right by us. And it was uh, husband, wife, and two girls, about 10 and 12. And they were so darling and so polite and had such a lovely conversation and and I was just looking at them thinking, see, there are great American parents, too. This is so fun to see how they're interacting with each other. And then they got up to leave and came by our table, and they were speaking French. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That was not fair. 
It was. You should have sent a. You should have sent in a comment to the article you just read and said, "I, I just witnessed. True, French parents are more matter of fact, and the kids are more orderly than American kids. You know, I think one difference is, Linda, that uh, a lot of times we are so. It's almost like we're, in some ways, too into parenting. We we want our kids to be perfect and we want them to be our friends and we want to be their friends and we want them to like us and I think sometimes that really gets in the way of good parenting. What we need to remember is that we're their parents, we're not their friends and they need boundaries and they don't need to talk about every boundary. They can just have some things that are that's the way it is in our family and there's no discussion and I think sometimes when we go a little too far and trying to explain everything and have them involved in every decision that's made in the home, we sort of give them the idea that our family is a democracy and they have an equal vote with the parents. And that's where we sometimes get into trouble. Uh, I agree with that. I think sometimes parents are even scared of their kids. I mean, they're afraid to say no for the consequences, which is crazy, but we have fallen into that in fact, this new generation of parents were kind of amused at some of our kids. Most of our kids started having kids before this happened, but we do have a darling daughter-in-law who just had her first baby at age 38. They just been married for a couple of years. And man, has she read every book, and, and both of them, because they're just a little bit older parents, are hovering over that child. Every second. Well, and because she's and because she's Swiss. Did you mention that she's from Switzerland? I didn't, so she, and that does have something to do with it. She has a lot of yeah. She has a lot of these European. Her model for parenting is very very different than ours, and I'm sure it's not better in all ways, but in some ways it's clearly superior. So, bottom line is, we can all learn from each other, and parents around the world can learn from each other, but. I want to come back to my first point, even though there are little nuances of differences in how we think about parenting and how we set up our discipline systems and so on. What is the same everywhere in the world, whether you're in China or whether you're in uh, Canada or whether you're in France, is that we have the same hopes and dreams for our kids and we have the same worries and fears for them. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because really, you know, we wouldn't want anyone to think that our way is the only way and everybody has their their own way of being the best parent that they can be. And I just, I have to laugh when I think of that because when our kids were little, it was so different. I mean, we had a big old van. Uh, there were benches in the back instead of seats, no seat belts, big shag carpet. This really does date us. And we just threw all the kids in the back. We put in the books, the sleeping bags, some food, and said, you know, we'll see in 200 miles and try not to kill each other, basically. And, um, you know, now it is just you have to really, really, really want to go somewhere to take those kids out because all that buckling in. If you have two or three preschoolers or two preschoolers and, a, you know, a child that still needs a, a bumper seat, it is a deal to get them out the door. And so it is those kinds of little things are very different. And we didn't have time to pay attention to a lot of stuff that was going on and to hover over the kids all the time and make sure that they were in every little class and so on. 
but um, although they were in a lot, and we're going to talk about that in a few minutes, but it really is interesting that everybody does develop their own parenting technique according to what they have to deal with. Now, let, let us use that as a kind of a segue into a subject that we want to discuss a little with you today. And the segue is that I do think, Linda, you'd probably agree that American parents are on the extreme end of the scale when it comes to wanting their kids to do everything, wanting them to be in every sport, on every team, take every possible thing to every lesson they possibly can, every musical lesson, every dance lesson. And sometimes in this country, more than other countries, I think, in fact, by far more than most parents we visit with abroad, we just burn the candle at both ends. We overschedule our kids. We want, we're, we're scared to death that we might not get them into some lesson where they could be the star of the world. I mean, what if, what if my son's the, the greatest lacrosse player in the world and I never got him into lacrosse lessons? What, what if my daughter is supposed to be a clarinetist in the National Philharmonic and I fail as her parent to get her clarinet lessons? I think we're way, way overscheduled. Now, not everyone, but as a parenting culture, don't you think we try to do a little too much? Well, we do, but I do remember the time when we had all nine kids at home and 27 lessons every week. It may be that the oldest had left well, by then, but, you know, it was crazy. And, in fact, this is a kind of a funny story. We had three little boys in soccer, which meant two practices during the week in a game on Saturday for each one of them. Two of them were on the same team, but one not. And so this was, we are just, besides all the piano lessons, harp lessons, flute lessons, trombone lessons, all that stuff, um, you know, at the end of the soccer season, the spring soccer season, I remember sitting those little boys down at the top of our stairs and standing kind of a few stairs below them saying, you guys, I am so sorry, but we are not going to be able to play soccer in the fall. We can't, we don't eat together. We don't talk, nothing. We just run around all the time to these games and, I'll never forget well, it wasn't just soccer. It was so- soccer was like the straw that broke the camel's back because they had lots of other lessons and lots well, yeah. of other team sports. Right, and there were so many things going on. So um, it really was funny because Noah just raised his little hand and said, "Oh, good, mom, because we don't really like soccer." <laughs> I about fell down the stairs the rest of the way. Why did you well, that? Well, that, that, that was yeah. That illustrates my point that we, on our own volition, often as parents, say, oh, well, you've got to take soccer, and you've got to take tennis, and you've got to take swimming, and you've got to go on a basketball team, and you need music lessons, and you should be in the dance class and the gymnastics class. Where does it all end, and how do we ever preserve a little calm time and a little free time for these children if we insist on having them do every single thing that any other kid on the block does. Well, but you know, Richard, and that was the key word, every other kid on the block, sometimes it's not the parents' fault, it's the kids' fault because they do want to be involved with their friends and they want to do everything that they've done. And uh, they have no concept of how much it costs or the time and effort or the carpools that are required to do it. 
And sometimes you just need to sit down as a family and decide exactly what you're going to do. We have kids who say, you know, you can do one music thing and one sport thing. You decide. You mean our kids? You mean you mean our, our kids now are raising their kids? Yeah. Well, I don't think they're and, limited to one, do they? I don't think they're yeah, limited quite that Yeah, they're in the They're saying one of each one, and they're doing just fine. Um, one and then sport, others. One, one sport, and what you mean? One sport and one music lesson. Right. You know, or oh, art, see. or dance, or something like that. You know. So and how um, long do they? How long do they give their kids to decide which one they want it to be? Well, you have to decide by the fall, or in January again they start classes. So you have to decide, and then you know let them go. Um, we even have uh, one of our children who has their children pay for half of their lessons so that they're very aware of how much it costs and that they are really careful about what they choose and it is what they really want to do. So, I mean, and some of it depends on who is in the carpool and how often you have to drive. There's just a lot of things. But I think mostly what you're saying, well, Richard, is just that we need to consider it carefully and then cut down as much as possible so that we can have a little more family time. Well, let me play devil's advocate on that. I mean, what if you say, okay, I'm only, each of my kids can only have one sport that they do and one music thing that they do. What, what do you, how do you answer this? What if someone says, well, wait a minute, I don't, until you try a lot of different sports or until you try a lot of different musical instruments or until you try different kinds of dance, how do you know and how does the child know? which one he's good at, which one he likes, and which one he should stay in. Well, that's, that is another problem because sometimes kids think they want to do something, they get into it, they're not happy about it, they don't like it, they don't want to stay, and then is the lesson just pull them out as soon as they don't like it, or do you say you have to stay this amount of time because you're the one that chose it, and then, um, well, then you can re-decide. Let's let's leave some of those questions hanging for a minute, and let's uh, take a short break. And when we come back for the second half, I'm now pulling in the driveway, Linda, so I'm going to join you on the other good line. I'll probably sound a little more mellow and sonorous than I do right now. And we'll try to deal with some of these questions about how much is too much and how in the world do you as a parent know if you're getting your kid into the thing that mirrors their talent and their uniqueness? We'll be back in a minute. And here we are back again. I've returned home and seen my dear wife, Linda. I haven't even had time to give her a kiss yet. I'll do that, though, promptly when we finish this show, honey. Well, it's it, we are having an interesting discussion today, and um, I think you may disagree with one of our children about taking um, having only their choice of one music, one athletic thing. What do you well, say? I mean, well, I think we've left a lot of questions hanging out there. I know this is something that really, really concerns a lot of parents. I cannot tell you the percentage of parents who, when you say, do you have any questions, they say, well, what am I going to do? And it seems like their their concerns focus in three areas. Number one, am I overcommitting my kids? Do they have too many lessons? Is it just too much for them? Is their schedule too complicated? Number two, how do I determine 
which of these sports and music and other extracurriculars is important and a second part of question number two, how do I know what their aptitudes are so I don't have them in the wrong thing? And then the third question, which is sort of where we're pointing, is how do I make the adjustments if, if they are overcommitted or if I do want to limit it a little bit more? How long do they have to be in a particular lesson or in a particular sport to know whether, A, they like it, and, B, whether they're any good at it, whether they have an aptitude for it? Wouldn't you say that kind of summarizes the questions we get, honey? Yeah, it does, but I also have an example of a family that we know who um, has children who have been raised in the Suzuki method. They all play either piano or violin or something, and they're excellent musicians, and it took so much time and so much work. And then um, they decided at the end of their family that they wanted one more child, and their son had been in Ukraine working with orphanages there, and they... This mother actually had a dream of a child in the orphanage with a dark curly hair, uh, a babyish child, and she said, that's the baby, I've got to go get her. And so she, they actually did go to Ukraine, they went to several orphanages, finally found this little girl who came out, and she was 18 months old and couldn't walk yet. And she thought, oh, I don't know if I can handle a child with special needs, with all the other stuff we've got going on, but this is the child in my dream, so I've got to take her home, which they did. This is making a long story very short. And um, so they got her home, and within a short time, she was walking, talking. Of course, the reason was that she'd been sitting in a crib for a year and a half without anybody paying any attention to her. So the bottom line of this is that this child has is a music musical genius. She's a prodigy. And she said, this mother said, you know, all of my children were musical and so on and so on, but this is different. This is different. She well, went to the piano and she had perfect pitch at two or three, and then she adored playing the piano. It was a whole different deal. So uh, what I'm saying is I think that if you have somebody that is going to be spectacular in a certain field, they'll gravitate to it. And we've found that with our kids they'll gravitate to their passions and what they love. So I don't think, I, I laid in bed a lot of nights thinking, what if I have a ballerina and I don't know anything about ballet and they never, you know, fulfill their reason for coming here or whatever. And it really was hard on me. But the older our kids have gotten, the more I've realized that they they do have a passion and that they do have to be exposed. You're right. But at the same time, well, they will gravitate to what it is that they love. Well, but I, but see, I think in a way you just made the the dilemma even more difficult, Linda, because this little girl, I know who you're talking about, and she is an exception to every rule. I mean, those parents did not have to sit up at night and say, gee, I wonder if we've got her in the right thing. I mean, she's a prodigy. She she She's a genius. She, you know, the piano, it's like she's joined at the, at the hip to the piano. She is wonderful at it. What I'm talking about is normal parents, average parents with sort of average normal kids who who say, "Gee, I, I think they must have a gift somewhere," and I certainly don't want to have them. Uh, I mean, see, our experience with one of our—I'm thinking of our youngest daughter, 
might be even more typical. We had her in violin simply because, frankly, Linda, we had her there because you're a violinist. And, yep, that's and right. And we thought, well, so she'll be a violinist. And I'm going to tell you right here on the right here on the radio, she was awful. <laughs> I mean, she was, <laughs> I was not only at, she was not only awful in the way that you know all kids are awful when they first screech away on the violin. She was awfuler than any other kid in her Suzuki class, and it was painful. And and we we just I mean we happened to start trying her on other instruments. Uh, largely to stop that screeching noise in our house. And guess what? The minute she picked up the flute, she had a friend, and she was good at it. She was oh, natural yeah. at she it. She was it seemed right playing with vibrato and all the passion of her little soul, and it was it was amazing. So I'm going to make a I'm going to be a little bold here and make a suggestion, and then I want you to critique it, Linda. Here's what I uh, obviously I can't deal with every family and every problem that they have. But as a general guideline or set of guidelines, here's what I would say. Number one, you do have an obligation to your child to try to spot where their real talents and aptitudes lie. And so it is important, in my view, early on, if you're able to, if, I mean, there's an expense involved here, too. None of these lessons are cheap, even teams even little league sports teams cost money, especially football, where parents end up buying all this equipment. So I'm not saying you can just go crazy on it, but to the degree you can, I think when kids are young, very young, or, you know, early elementary kids, it's a really good idea to let them try various things, both in sports and in music. But to have a time frame actually set up with the child by which time they must make a decision, along with you as their parent, uh, as to which lessons they want to stay in. Now, now maybe you'll be as severe as our daughter that Linda mentioned, who, who's told her kids, look, you can try some different things, but by this particular time, this particular date, you've got to pick one sport and one musical thing, because that's all we're going to do. That's all we can or afford. Or one that's art all we're going to do. thing, or whatever. In the art, right now, maybe maybe you will say, I, you know, I'd like them to have, you know, one musical instrument. I'd also like them to have one or two sports that they're interested in that they're doing. And then my point is, whatever you decide as a parent is the limit. You need to create a time frame and say we will try other things until this time, and then you, the child, and me, the parent, us, the parents need to work together and decide which one we want to focus on for the year ahead. That doesn't mean you might not change after a year or two if the child develops a new interest or whatever. But I guess what I'm saying is I think the key answer lies in some kind of discipline, some kind of limit, so that what you don't get into is 27 lessons a week and kids going hither and yon and sort of becoming... Uh, you know, a jack of all trades, master of none when it comes to all these extracurriculars. There needs to be a, a schedule and a time in which you're going to limit it, and maybe you have two phases. You limit it to this many, and then another year you limit it to a smaller number. And having a plan like that, I think, sort of is, a, is an advantage in an unexpected way. I think then kids sort of become aware 
yeah, what are, what do what do I like most? What what do I enjoy most? What am I best at? What do I think I would enjoy a few years from now? And it gets them in on this thinking, and it probably makes them apply themselves a little bit more, don't you think, Linda, in, in whatever they're doing? Well, I do, and that leads me into what I was just thinking, and that is, you know, I, we have had a lot of kids take violin lessons, and all of our children have taken piano lessons for a certain amount of time. And um, I, none of them really, well, one is still musical, loves music, and they all love music. The bottom line is they all love music because they understand what it takes to play in an orchestra. Every time they see the symphony or a string quartet or something, they appreciate it so much more. So, I, I mean, even though they're not playing daily or uh, even playing in groups, uh, I feel like we haven't wasted our money or our time because they really have learned how to appreciate it. The same with dance, the same with art. I'd even say the same with sports. That, uh, yeah, absolutely. Our I mean, who, our boys, you know, we didn't have to wonder about what they were going to love because their father played basketball and loved basketball. And so we ended up with um, two sons that were All-Americans and one that went to the NCAA. And, you know, several of them played on uh, high school basketball teams and loved it, and two in college. So, you know, it it does come kind of from your passion in some ways. And, of course, it doesn't hurt when this your child is 6'9", to put him into basketball. Well, but we also, well. but, don't for, but don't forget, Linda, we also had a 6'6 six, six kid who everyone thought played basketball, and guess what? He was a hockey player. Yeah, and no one right. in our family had ever done that at all, but partly because he wanted to sort of do his own thing. That's the direction he went. But, uh, you know, again, I think what we're both saying is this is an area that requires a lot of thought. The parents who we run into seem to have a problem with this thing, this whole area of what to do with lessons and music and sports and so on, are usually the ones that don't have a plan and have never really tried to get a plan. They're just sort of out there, okay, let's try this, okay, let's try this, okay, you don't like that, let's drop out. And and parents need instead to get involved and to have a time frame that's long enough that a kid can really sort of tell whether he might like it in the future. Like, no kid is going to accept this genius that you mentioned, Linda, is going to love piano on the first week of his lessons. It's always going to be a little hard. And so right. you need to sort of decide how important it is to you as a parent, counsel with the child, and then set up some timetables so that you have a plan on how much you're going to get involved. And here's a motto for you. Survey large fields and cultivate small ones. That's actually a farmer model, okay? Survey large fields, but cultivate small ones. In other words, find the places that are the most fertile, and that's the ones you cultivate, not the whole mountainside. And I and think let me, now... Let me have, just go ahead and finish your sentence. Well, if you apply that to what we're talking about, survey large fields, let them try and be exposed to a lot of things... And, and that's not always taking lessons. You just take them to games or take them to symphonies, but then cultivate small fields. And let me just say before we close off that, you know what? We have five fabulous photographers who never got any training from us, and they use it every day. So good luck with trying to figure out what your kids are good at and what their passions are, and we'll talk to you again next week. 
See you next week.